All right, so I have 10.30 on my clock, so um, we'll get started with the session. But before we get started, I am going to be muting um, the conference line aside from our speaker, so please hold for a second while I do that. The conference is now in silent mode. Okay, Laura, can you speak up for a second? Hi, yes. Okay, great. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. All right, so let's get started with the session. So I'd like to first thank everyone for dialing in to this SMA space speaker session entitled Missile Defenses as Anti-Satellite Weapons, and especially thank our speaker, Dr. Laura Grego, for taking the time to present today. So hopefully everyone that dialed in received her bio and slides, which I sent out in an event invitation. And if you haven't received these materials, you can feel free to email me and I'll send those over to you. So now I'm briefly going to introduce Dr. Grego, Grego before turning the floor over to her. Dr. Laura Grego is a senior scientist in the Union of Concerned Scientists Global Security Program, which and focuses her analysis and advocacy on the technology and security dimensions of ballistic missile defense and of outer space security. She's authored or co-authored numerous papers on a range of topics, including cosmology, space security, and missile defense. And she's also a technical advisor for the Woomera Manual on the International Law of Military Space Operations Project. So Dr. Grego, over to you. Hi, thanks Nicole, and thanks everyone for joining in on a Friday morning. Really appreciate it. Um, this is based on some work I've done over the years, but I'm currently re revisiting and revising it for publication. So it is a work in progress, um, especially when I get to the quantitative sections. So in that sense, I'd appreciate if you don't circulate the slides further. Um, but I'm also really interested in your reactions and feedback to the content. Um, I did number the slides, so I hope that will he keep us together. They're in the bottom right-hand corner. So I'm going to move right to slide number two. Um, so uh, ballistic missile defenses and anti-satellite weapons have a long history of close association. During the years that the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty was in effect, states may have preferred to describe missile defense technology development as anti-satellite weapons research because the former was heavily restricted. Um, today, missile defenses are not formally restricted by treaty, and states are more uneasy about anti-satellite weapons than missile defense systems. So in any case, um, many of the technologies are relevant to both, both missions. Um, and this is because long-range ballistic missiles travel at speeds and altitudes comparable to those of low-Earth orbiting satellites. And this image shows an um, ICBM launch in yellow of around 11,000 kilometer range. Um, this is from DPRK to Washington, DC. At its highest point, it reaches about 1,250 kilometers. Um, the light blue circle is a circular low Earth orbit at about 1,000 kilometers altitude, which is a typical low Earth orbiting satellite. Um, both the satellite and missile are traveling a bit over seven kilometers per second, around 30 times the speed of a jet plane. Um, so, but in fact, while the technologies being developed for long-range missile defenses might not prove all that effective against ballistic missiles, they actually could be far more effective against satellites, and there are a few reasons for this. Um, the launch of a ballistic missile may occur with little to no notice, and those take 30 to 40 minutes from launch to landing, um, so you don't have a lot of time to react and, and not many chances to do your job. However, satellites travel in repeated predictable orbits, and observations of the satellite can be used to predict its future position. Thus, an anti-satellite attack could be planned in advance to be under the most convenient conditions, and the attacker may be able to try multiple times if the first try fails. 
While an adversary launching a ballistic missile may take advantage of the short duration of its flight by introducing decoys or other countermeasures that might make it difficult for missile defense to find the right target in time to destroy it, that's not really a useful strategy for defending missiles. So moving to slide three. Um, just to keep us all on the same page, I'm, I'm not sure how many technical talks you have, um, but ballistic missile defenses have been developed to counter missiles of different ranges. And it's worth taking a minute to understand how they all fit together. Short and medium range missiles have ranges of hundreds of kilometers. And while at their highest, they do get slightly above the atmosphere into what we call space, they spend little time there. Um, and they don't get as high as any but a few, few satellites. So missile defenses such as the US Patriot and SAD systems that are designed to intercept in the atmosphere or just above it are not relevant to anti-satellite use, and I'm not going to talk about those. Intermediate range missiles of a few thousand kilometers do get into space for at least a short time. And systems designed to counter those uh, could, in theory, be used against some satellites in low Earth orbit. As these theater missile defense systems become more capable, they begin to be able to counter um, ICBMs as well and they begin to be able to reach more satellites. Um, intercontinental ballistic missiles have reaches greater than 5,500 kilometers, and many are designed to go further than 10,000. Uh, and they spend a significant amount of time in space, around 30 minutes. Um, in the past, because of agreements such as the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which lasted from around 1972 to 2002, there was significant attention paid to the di differences between theater and strategic missile defenses. But in the absence of that treaty and with the continued development of the technology, this distinction becomes well, less well-defined. But it's still useful to think about it in this context. The missile defense systems that are designed to protect large areas from long-range missiles, which I, we can call strategic missile defense systems, those are the ones that have the most inherent capability as ASAT weapons. Another distinction that's useful to note is that all of the currently deployed systems, as well as most of those that are being developed, um, have the missiles are being targeted during mid-course phase. So you see the arrow pointing to that. That's when things are up above the atmosphere, after their boosters have burned out and they're just cruising under gravity. Um, but there are some new systems that are being designed to target long-range missiles in the boost phase, meaning while the, the attacking missile is actively burning. This phase only lasts a few minutes, so missile defenses have to be very fast and capable and close to the launch site. The combination of those needs might create a missile defense that actually has very anti-potent anti-satellite capability. Um, and I'll talk about that at the end of this talk, um, but especially in the case of space-based, boost-based missile defenses. So moving on to the next slide, number four. Um, so these mid-course systems, when I say mid-course, those ones intercepting up above the atmosphere, they generally either use kinetic energy interceptors that are ground or space-based. Um, or some schemes have high powers of directed energy to destroy their targets. Um, I'm not going to talk about lasers and directed energy today because I don't have enough time to cover everything. But um, so I'm sticking with kinetic energy interceptors. And those destroy warheads by the force of impact. Um, so uh, both an ICBM missile body itself, which, mo which must survive the rigors of launch, as well as the actual reentry vehicle that carries a weapon, um, those are both built to be much more robust than a satellite, uh, which doesn't have to go up and down through the atmosphere. And satellites tend to be much more delicate and more easily disrupted. Um, so of these systems you see on this slide, uh, this 
strategic missile defense systems that have been fielded are the ground-based mid-course defense system, which is um, the, the interceptors mainly based in Fort Greeley, Alaska, and a few in Vandenberg, Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. Um, and there's also the Aegis missile defense system, which is built to be a regional system, but which will eventually have some strategic capabilities. Those are uh, built to be on ships. Um, and there are a couple of uh, ground-based Aegis Ashore um, um, stations planned, too. Um, so essentially, the way it works is that the kill vehicles onboard sensors, um, so that there's um, basically a missile launch is queued or is detected by space-based infrared sensors um, and ground-based radars. Those queue the kill vehicle or the interceptor to tell it, in general, what area to go to. Um, the missile defense launches something that the interceptor of the missile defense actually also looks quite a bit like a missile launch because they're powerful and get things going really quickly. Uh, and it launches a kill vehicle towards the intercept point. The kill vehicle's onboard sensors are used to guide itself towards the target and ram into the target, whether it's a, you know, a warhead or a satellite, in destroying it with the force of impact. Um, and satellites and warheads will have similar enough visible signatures that they could be used on either target. So the two systems I'm going to focus on for most of this talk are the ground-based mid-course defense system, which you see on the far left of this slide, and the Aegis system, which is just next to it. Um, so some pictures, and moving to the next slide, slide five. Um, uh, so in the case of the GMD system, ground-based mid-course system, the interceptor is launched from a ground-based silo in the, in the case of the Aegis missile defense system from ship-based launch tubes, or as I mentioned, a few land-based silos. Um, so uh, the, the sensors on the kill vehicle use light and two infrared bands designed to detect light emitted by room temperature ICBM-launched warheads or sunlight reflected off of them in the vacuum of space. Um, the ability to actually home on, on any given satellite depends on the satellite's particular properties, including its operating temperature, its surface properties, whether it's currently in sunlight. But we do know that it can be done. Um, if anyone doubted the ability of these interceptors to target satellites, they didn't after 2008 U.S. Operation Burnt Frost, in which um, an expensive and sensitive intelligence satellite failed shortly after launch. Um, and eventually, as it was, its orbit decayed and was going to re it was going to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, and Aegis ship launched an SM-31A interceptor and destroyed the satellite. Uh, that was in a, at an altitude of 240 kilometers, which is just you know, just where you can start to orbit satellites. Um, but this demonstrated the ability of even the less sophisticated kill vehicle to home on a satellite and intercept it. Um, while the Pentagon does take pains to say that this capability was reversed and will not be included as a standard capability on the system, certainly any adversary would assume that reconstituting this capability would be a small additional effort beyond the development of the interceptors and building the ships. So, um, Thus, the primary limit to whether an interceptor can be used to target satellites really is whether the interceptor can reach those satellites. We know that the kill vehicle can home on satellites and ran, run into them. So um, low-Earth orbiting satellites are generally in highly inclined or nearly polar orbits, and those orbits will take them over any given region on Earth um, with the latitude below the inclination angle, which I'll describe in a minute, um, twice a day. So since an attacker can choose the timing and geometry of, of um, the attack, it can be mounted when the satellite is right overhead and the distance to that target is minimized. 
So under those conditions, an interceptor can use its entire speed to go straight up and reach the highest altitude possible rather than reach out laterally. So looking more closely at these systems, um, the GMD interceptors are quite powerful because they need to engage ICBMs and cover the entire U.S. geography. Um, the, the burnout speeds of the interceptors are not publicly known, um, but we can estimate them. Um, we've made an estimate by looking at the timing and geography of the most recent intercept test in May 2017, and from that we estimated the, the ground-based mid-course interceptor's minimum burnout speed was around six kilometers per second. Um, burnout speeds for, uh, for the GMD interceptors indicated by other public estimates indicate that it could be as much as seven and a half kilometers per second, so pretty speedy. But in any case, um, a missile with this burnout speed could lift the kill vehicle to an altitude of roughly 6,000 kilometers. So that can reach all of low Earth orbit, um, though not the next highest cluster of satellites, the position, navigation, and timing constellations at altitudes of around 22,000 kilometers. Um, as I mentioned, um, the GMD system currently comprises 44 interceptors. Um, Congress has made efforts to increase this number in response to advances in the North Korean missile and nuclear program. Um, and funding was included in the current budget for 20 more interceptors. Um, and it's likely in the upcoming missile defense review, which we expect this month, um, that it will recommend expanding the system even further, perhaps up to 100 interceptors. Um, while the GMD system has had persistent reliability problems, um, its test record has never been better than 50-50. Um, and has yet to be tested rigorously under operationally realistic conditions, those problems uh, really are more specific to a missile defense role. Um, those are much less relevant in when using a GMD system in ASAT role because it doesn't have the time sensitivity. You can do many shots at a time. Um, so moving to the next slide, which is slide six. Um, the Aegis, so, so taking a deeper dive on the Aegis missile defense system, um, that, so those are equipped um, for its ballistic missile defense role. It's equipped with SM-3 interceptors, um, which are much smaller than the ground-based mid-course defense interceptors. They're based at sea on Aegis ships converted to the purpose. Um, and it's meant to be a flexible system and address emerging ballistic missile threats from the Middle East and East Asia over the coming decades. Um, the system will be improved incrementally. Um, so the current generation of the SM-3 missiles which are called Block 1A and Block 1B, um, the one used in Burt Frost, um, those will eventually be augmented and perhaps replaced uh, with the longer range and more sophisticated Block 2A missiles being jointly developed with Japan. More ships will be outfitted with ballistic missile defenses. Um, the current Aegis interceptors can reach only the relatively few satellites in orbit with perigees at or below 600 kilometers altitude. Um, you can see um, from this graph, um, the, the blue curve is sort of the cumulative number of low Earth orbiting satellites. So you see a, you know, a big bump happens sort of around 900 uh, kilometers altitude. And you pick up a few as you get above 1,000. But really, if you can reach 1,000, that's, you know, that's the whole game. Um, so the, the less capable interceptors can really reach only the fewest nearest satellites. But um, the more capable uh, SM-3 Block 2A interceptors are intended to defend against larger areas. 
against more capable threats, and even using a conservative estimate of the burnout speed for such a missile, um, like four and a half kilometers per second, that would be able to reach the vast majority of low Earth orbiting satellites. Um, so, inter so interceptors with burnout speeds in this range, um, you know, SM32A and the GMD interceptors could reach any satellite in low Earth orbit. Now, in terms of the numbers of these, the, the number of BMD-capable Aegis ships is expected to reach 77 by 2040, so big expansion. And the number of ASAT-capable interceptors likely will be in the hundreds, um, perhaps 500 or 600. So um, again, these are numbers that I'll have to review when we see what comes out of the NDAA this year. Um, so while the U.S. has long had an anti-satellite capability in its missile defense systems sort of inherent in these interceptors, um, what's coming up is ASAT capability on a much different scale. Many more interceptors that can reach many more uh, satellites. So the enormous potential size of the capability is what's new. So moving to slide seven, um, so that this large and flexible ASAC capability can be compared to the satellite inventory of the two heaviest space users after the U.S. The U.S. owns just shy of half of all actively operating low-Earth orbiting satellites. China has a total of 144 satellites in low-Earth orbit, of which 33 are dedicated military satellites, and Russia has 75 in low-Earth orbit, of which 45 are dedicated military satellites. This is a point of comparison. The U.S. has 545 in low-Earth orbiting satellites. Um, so, so the sheer number of interceptors compared to the inventory of satellites is not the only important point um, that I want to make. Um, another is that the Aegis system is highly mobile. Um, so there will be scores of planned Aegis ships, and if desired, they could be positioned optimally to stage a sweep attack on a set of satellites nearly at once, rather than a sequential set of attacks as satellites moved into range of fixed interceptor sites. That positioning flexibility also means that the less capable missiles would not have to reach, would not have to expend as much of their thrust going across range. It could retain their ability to reach the highest satellites that they were capable of. Um, also, the more powerful uh, GMD interceptors could use some of their their um, thrust, some of their velocity, not to just go straight up, but to reach laterally over thousands of kilometers allowing them to hit satellites in orbits that don't pass directly over the GMD missile fields in Alaska and California. So the mobility of the Aegis ships and the excess speed of the GMD interceptors make this uh, an even more potent capability. And I'll try to demonstrate that visually. In the next slide, slide eight, um, here's a distribution of the satellite perigees, meaning the closest point a satellite comes. Um, in low Earth orbit range. They cluster heavily in the 500 to 700 kilometer region. Um, that's where a lot of, you get good resolution, you, it's a good sun-synchronous orbit um, with uh, high resolution by satellite orbit. Um, it allows the same region on Earth to be imaged at the same sun angle over time. So nearly all of the satellites are below 1,000 kilometers. Um, to get an idea, um, so, um, so to get an idea of sort of where they are, I also um, plotted their inclination. So the inclination is the angle that its orbit makes with respect to the equator. So if it's at zero, it's an equatorial orbit, and your satellite is just going around the equator. If it's 90, it's going up above the poles. Um, and what happens if you're going around the poles? The Earth rotates underneath you, and you see the whole the whole Earth. Um, 
So that's important for one reason. Uh, we'll go to slide nine. This isn't the, the greatest slide, um, but what I'm trying to show you here is that um, satellites with inclination angles near 90 degrees, or these higher angles, they, um, satellites with a given inclination angle tend to pile up their time at that latitude that their inclination angle is at. So satellites with angles near 90 degrees pass near the North Pole once every 90-minute orbit. So a single very northern interceptor site could be a very efficient spot to catch a large number of satellites because they'll repeatedly come up over there. Um, so moving to the next slide, which is slide 10. Uh, so what I plotted here, this green, uh, <laughs> it's not a great circle. It's just a circle on the Earth. Um, so what I plotted here is, um, so that's the, you can see Fort Greeley is a red dot. That's in Alaska. That's where the ground-based mid-course interceptors are located. Um, I said, OK, let them reach 1,000 kilometers. So they had to be able to get to 1,000 kilometers. How far can you get out um, from that spot and reach 1,000 kilometer satellite? So these are, these are circles of reach out capability. So the green circle is sort of that minimum speed that we calculated from the most recent test. And the red circle is sort of the better estimate of what the real capability of that is. So this is sort of the, the reach out capability of a, of a GMD interceptor just sitting where it is. So you can see it can cover a lot of territory uh, just from one launch site. Um, the orange circle is, uh, is essentially sort of more or less where the seventh fleet is that has Aegis capabilities in East Asia that is using um, sort of a, a lower level um, estimate for the SM-3-2 um, interceptor. Um, so as I mentioned, you can put these on ships and you can position them all over. This covers a lot of the globe at one time, supporting this idea that you could do, a, rather than a sequential clip of satellites, a, a sweep capability. Um, the next slide, slide 11, is just the other side of the globe. Um, a lot of the Egypt ships um, in Europe for the Medi are, are um, in Rota, Spain. So this is just an idea of laying these circles around. You can see pretty quickly you can get down to the equator, up to the poles, and cover a lot of ground with, a, with not a huge amount of um, ships if you include the GMD capability. Okay, uh, so the next slide, slide 12, um, as I mentioned, I was going to come back to space-based missile defense. So I wanted to touch on this briefly. Um, since the Reagan, Star Wars, and George H.W. Bush era, brilliant Pebbles programs were shuttered. No unclassified research and development program for space-based missile defense exists. Uh, but Congress has consistently tried to add funding for such a program with modest success. Um, the Pentagon itself has not asked for money for such a program since the late 2000s. Pentagon officials have repeatedly voiced doubt that it would be useful or cost-effective. Um, that judgment is in line with the best publicly available technical advice. In 2005, the American Physical Society conducted an in-depth in study of boost-based missile defense and concluded that space-based missile defense would be extremely costly. Um, in 2012, the National Academy of Sciences drew on this work and agreed, uh, concluding that even, even though launch costs are lower than they've been, um, that for an austere capability that could defend against a few North Korean missiles, a constellation of 600 interceptors costing on order of $300 billion would be required. Okay, so for these reasons, a fully realized system is unlikely to be built anytime soon. However, Congress has continued to push the idea, and it's quite possible that the current administration will include a space-based 
food space component as part of its strategy to be laid out in the missile defense review that will be released this month, hopefully. Uh, so if that is the case, things might start to happen rather quickly. Uh, the next slide, slide 13, contains language added to the National Defense Authorization Act that was signed just before uh, um, the end of 2017. It says that if the missile defense review endorses the idea of space-based missile defense, the plan would be to get a test bed into space and have a live fire, live fire test in four years. So I think we should be considering um, this when we're looking at near-term possibilities. Um, so most publi publicly described schemes for space-based missile defense require burnout velocity for the interceptors of four to six kilometers per second. They need to go fast because they're catching something that, uh, that's time sensitive. The interceptors will, would already be in low Earth orbit, meaning they'll already have a speed upwards of seven kilometers per second. So such a space-based interceptor using a combined speed of 11 to 13 kilometers per second could carry a kill vehicle out to geosynchronous orbits in an hour or two. So next slide is where I'm pulling this all together. So slide 14, this is really the key slide of the talk. Um, I mentioned the U.S. is building an enormous inventory of missile defense interceptors that can be flexibly deployed, and which have significant inherent ASAC capability. Um, but of course, the U.S. is not alone in developing these technologies, although it is way out ahead of everyone else. Um, it's hard to get reliable technical information about the capabilities for similar Chinese and Russian systems in the public domain, um, but it's likely that they'll have similar capabilities. Um, at a minimum, they could probably defend theater-sized regions and reach low-Earth-orbiting satellites as they pass overhead. There's no good reason to think this technology is out of reach for either country should they decide to spend the time and resources to develop them. So um, so, so basically, this, this lays out the burnout speed, some of the notional or um, development projects, and what types of satellites they might eventually be able to reach. Um, moving to the next slide, slide 15, um, of course, just because a system can do something doesn't mean it will be used to do so, clearly. Um, in fact, there are powerful incentives not to test or use missile defense interceptors against satellites, and one of those incentives is the creation of, disincentives is the creation of persistent orbital debris. The collision of a satellite with even a marble-sized piece of debris sort of one to 10 centimeter size would be catastrophic because of the high speeds of the collisions. So you don't want debris in space if possible. Um, the destruction of a single 10 ton satellite, and these are common, um, would double the amount of debris in low Earth orbit. Um, and debris, is, of course, is not discriminate. It'll spread out over time and contaminate a large region. This is an illustration of, this figure is an illustration of the debris cloud's evolution over time, which spreads into a shell and contaminates a large area. Um, so, and this, this is a type of debris at these altitudes that could persist for decades or centuries. Um, in the U.S., it's, uh, all countries are clearly aware of the debris consequences of using kinetic energy interceptors to destroy satellites. Um, but one does have to acknowledge that, um, you know, so, so it makes it unlikely that anyone would use missile defense interceptors as an ASAT weapon of choice, or simply to signal intent, or in any situation outside of a major conflict. But one has to acknowledge that this enormous capacity does exist, and it will shape threat perceptions, it will affect military planning, 
And I'm particularly concerned with anything that speeds up timelines and fosters a use it or lose it dynamic with respect to space-enabled disabilities. So to my last slide, and it looks like I've got two minutes to wrap up. Um, solutions and strategies, and I'd be really interested to hear your reactions to these. Um, so as I mentioned, space using and space aspiring states are certainly disinclined to use debris-producing weapons to protect their perceived interest in space, certainly outside of a crisis. Um, but yet they shape, they shape plans and they exist. Um, at the same time, we no longer have the limits of the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which restricted strategic capable missile defenses. And yet we have a growing reliance on space assets. What do we do? Um, the US has significant investments in space that can be held at risk. Does it serve US interests to continue with unbounded, unlimited competition in this arena? I would argue no. Um, what are the things we could do about it? Um, one, one technical solution is to place limits on speeds and ranges of interceptors. Um, I tried to lay out some justification in my short time with you. We have a serious history in, in, the, in the ABM Treaty, an extremely detailed technical document that, that you know, in times of serious um, competition, the US and the Soviet Union were able to conclude. Also reasonable would be limits to the numbers of interceptors. Um, some have suggested a ban on actually testing them above the atmosphere. Um, so no, no destructive testing. An advantage of this, it would keep debris out of orbit. It would create some uncertainty about the operational readiness of these technologies. So would some disinclination to use them. So of course, these ideas are not new, but the sense of urgency might be as these systems are being developed to be more capable and more states are developing them. So with this, I'm going to leave you, and I'd be really interested in hearing your thoughts and reactions. Thanks. All right.